Sweet dreams. We stopped dreaming. The entire human race just stopped. Apparently, increased proximal interactions with technology for multiple generations slowly changed the basic physical and chemical structure of the brain. First, people's sleep patterns got altered. Then, slowly, the dreams became less and less vivid, and then they disappeared. Nobody noticed initially, even when more and more people started claiming they don't dream. It was all chalked up to just not remembering. Then finally, no one could remember their dreams anymore. Researchers studying brain activity found that people have stopped dreaming completely, affecting memory, cognition, and IQ. It was Dr. Morpheus who invented the dream pod. It used virtual reality and augmented it to be experienced while asleep. Sleep centers mushroomed all over the world. Bigger centers had research teams creating cutting-edge simulations. More realistic experience meant more stimulation to the brain, leading to benefits ranging from better cognitive ability to even anti-aging. It was like getting a massage for the brain. Better the massage, more powerful the effect, and more addictive. Dreamcatcher Inn by Dr. Morpheus was the best. From top-notch, luxurious spa resort setting to the most realistic simulations, the ones where you can feel the spray from the waves or the subtle flavor of a macaron, it had everything. They boasted of the biggest repertoire of dreams in every genre. Yes. Even horror. They had a top-secret research facility they called the Dream Farm. Nobody knew who worked for them and what they did in there, until they found the disoriented boy Carmen, drugged with a cocktail of neurotransmitters and anesthetics, restrained bruises on arms and legs. He was promptly deposited with the police by the Good Samaritans that found him. The cops found that Caraman was dead and incinerated ten years back when he was five years old. They had the certificate on the virtual screens, and yet there he was in front of them, touching things in awe and laughing. He repeatedly asked for his mommy. They tried to ask him a few questions, but it was like talking to a five-year-old. They brought in the child abuse specialist. Cass. She asked Carmen to paint, and while he moved the stylus across the screen, she asked what his last memory was. Oh, Doctor M told me not to talk about it. You can tell me. I work with Doctor M. I had a dream again. Which center did you dream in? No center. Okay, try to remember the kind of pod you were dreaming on. It was just my bed at home. They nabbed Doctor Morpheus soon after he confessed to everything. He was contacted by dreamers from time to time. While studying their brains, he hit upon the mechanism to capture the dreams and replay in the pod. They were the most realistic dreams he had ever seen. No simulations could compete with them, ever, and hence, 
the dream farm was born. The Nightmare Mom, I had a dream, declared Isel one fine morning. <laughs> Darling, you're being silly again, chided Mary. I told you we can't dream on our own. That's why we have morph pods. I just took you for your last dream three weeks back. If you want to dream again, just say so. You don't need to lie. A few nights later, Isel started waking up in the middle of the night, terrified. When asked what happened, he didn't remember a thing. Mary started getting worried. Was there something wrong with her little boy? It had been a century since people lost the ability to dream. Eventually, Dr. Morpheus invented morph pods, and people could dream again with the help of virtual reality. It wasn't like real dreams, they said, but... Close enough. Coming out of her reverie, she decided she had to take Isel to Dr. Morpheus. He would know what to do. Dr. Morpheus monitored and observed Isel while he dreamt. One day, as Dr. M came to check in on the monitors, Isel's hand slid off the bed and Dr. M instinctively reached out. The moment their hands touched, he felt a surge of dread and utter despair coursed through his veins. Isel turned to him with open, unseeing eyes and said ominously, They are coming, and went back to sleep. They asked Isel about the dream when he woke up, but he didn't remember a thing. A few more experiments later, Dr. M concluded, Isel is having the same dream every night, and he has some kind of telepathic ability which allowed him to project. They needed to see the dream. It held the key to all this mystery. After months of trying, Dr. M figured out the mechanisms to transfer Isel's dream to the morph pod. We were always told that aliens will come from the sky, but there they were crawling out of the earth and the sea. It was like eggs that had finally hatched. They grew exponentially on land, seven times the size of the tallest human. Humanoid, but with tentacles of an octopus and an alien bulging face with drooling big mouth and jagged teeth. They were hungry and ate people like grapes. The sticky blood running down their pointy chin. Finally, the army managed to capture one of the babies and found that the only thing that could kill it was nuclear. So, destroying it meant destroying Earth. Dr. M woke with a start. Surely, it's just a super realistic dream. As he sat shell-shocked, the news played overhead. The sea rover has sent back pictures of what looks like a nest of metallic alien eggs in the depth of the Mariana Trench.
prodigy. My right eye was itching all day. You know, like the feeling you get when an eyelash falls into it? Except that I have no lashes or any hair on my body anywhere. It has to be this way for my work and my calling. I am the top researcher at my government's secret facility. The experiments we do are critical. I can't have them get contaminated with accidental shedding of hair from an eyebrow. We completed an important experiment today. Facility and director commended me and said I am a genius and there should be more like me. I agree. I have just returned from work and what do you know, it was just an eyelash after all. Where did it come from though? I'm always so careful. I think back to yesterday while doing my daily scrub and bath. I met Maria. She was gorgeous, intelligent, and in a steady relationship. Perfect for me. As I had climbed through her window, I had felt a familiar sense of excitement. I smile, thinking about it. I had surprised her in the bedroom. She was startled, and I sprayed my concoction. She fell to the bedroom floor in a heap, unconscious. Not knowing is important. I did what I needed to do, then picked her up from the floor to take her to the bed. I stumbled and fell with her on top of me. Seeing her face so close, I couldn't resist and kissed her deeply. Then, that's when her eyelash must have gotten into my eye. I laid her on the bed and proceeded to wipe her down completely. An extra set of precaution. I took a few valuable trinkets and went back out. I had never kissed one of them before. I would have to be careful. They call me the gentleman thief after all. I thought, chuckling, they must continue to think it was just a robbery. By the time they realize they are pregnant, the robbery would be a distant memory. There would be no reason to suspect. And then, there will be more of me. I did. Trey came to me for insomnia, but in our first session itself, I could see something was not right. It wasn't like he couldn't sleep, but more like he won't. He would get gruesome nightmares of a girl torturing and decapitating people. The torture would always be different, from pliers to the nails to knocking out teeth with a small hammer or the dreaded nutcracker for some of the men. All of them would end up with decapitation with a pocket knife. He could feel the warmth of the blood and flesh as the soft necks were slowly slit open, as if he was using his own hands. I was surprised at how descriptive he was about his dreams. I prescribed medication to improve the quality of sleep, thinking that it would make him forget the dreams. Instead, they got worse and more detailed. That is when I suggested psychoanalysis. Trey was ready to try anything. 
As Trey reached the periphery of consciousness, Una emerged. There was a shift in Trey's body. He suddenly sat up and crossed one leg over the other, hands resting gently on the knee. The voice was sultry and smooth as silk, and just a little bit mocking. Hi, Doc. It was a pleasure to finally meet you, she said huskily, eyes twinkling. I was enraptured and afraid at the same time, an insurmountable feeling of thrill in the pit of my stomach. I had my eyes on you for a long time now, she said. I asked her if I can speak to Trey. She laughed, a throaty laughter. <laughs> he can see us, don't worry. I've been caring for him like a son, making him stronger and protecting him at the same time. He's weak, you know, always afraid. That's why he needs to watch. As we talked more, I found out about the abuse from Una. Trey had buried it deep down, blocked it. Una was formed to make sure no one will hit Trey again. She took the place of the mother who was too drunk to care. Why give him such horrible dreams? I asked. Dreams? <laughs> you thought those were dreams? She laughed manically. She pushed last week's paper in my direction. Second page, last column. The gruesome mafia killing of the gambling foster mom? I asked. She smiled proudly. The kids are safe now. I felt cold. I would need to report this immediately. She chuckled. <laughs> you can't report it. You have to protect Trey too, right? I was bewildered. She just read my mind. She softened. Oh, you poor thing. You still don't get it. What? Are you going to kill me too? I haven't done anything wrong. I said bravely. She said almost maternally. Oh, Twain. I don't have to kill you. I just won't let you. Don't you get it? Trey is the conscious. I am the superconscious. And you are? The veil lifted as I saw Trey and Una together. Shocked, I uttered. The subconscious. The Agori. The flames leapt up, cavorting and crackling, dancing an enraged dance on the corpse that lay on the funeral pyre. You could hear the sizzle and pop of the body as the fire consumed it inside out. Bang! The skull exploded. An overwhelming smell of burning flesh hung in the air. I stood, rooted for a long time, watching a bad dream I couldn't wake up from. Some stragglers told me to leave. What's done is done. But I couldn't just leave her there, all alone. As the skies deepened to an inky black, I sat motionless, 
And that's when I saw him. His head, a bundle of matted locks, bloodshot eyes, flowing mustache and beard knotted with grime, wearing only the Rudraksh beads, a corpse hung from his shoulders. I went to a pyre and replenished the gray ash covering his naked body from head to toe. He had found the rotting body in the holy river. It will do for the rituals. He sat, cross-legged on its chest, and went into a deep state of meditation. I sat, looking at him for hours as if in a trance. He ended his contemplation, got up, and bowed to the Almighty. Then turned and tore a piece of decaying corpse and ate it like it was the best morsel of food to touch his lips. A dog sauntered closer. He offered another piece of flesh to the dog. Then he picked up a broken skull, burnt flesh still hanging onto its bone. He got water from the river. He gulped down most of it and then offered the rest to the dog. He is an agori a mystical sect that immerse themselves in the taboo practices to reach ultimate enlightenment and gain supernatural powers. You would know how to bring her back. I opened my mouth to speak, but my throat was as scorched as the logs burning around me. A gnarly smile erupted from his lips, revealing disfigured, spotted teeth. You are wasting your time mourning the mortal body. He boomed. The Eternal is at your home. Give it what it seeks. He blew the ash on me. I instinctively blinked, and he vanished. Myra was waiting outside, sobbing, spitting image of her mother at that age. Then, I saw her, with a black eye and blood flowing from her poisoned blue lips her hand stroking Myra's head gently. She turned to me, her big haunting eyes begging me. The Agori had allowed me to see her one last time. Myra ran towards me. Uncle, I don't want to stay with Papa. He slapped me when I asked for Ma. As I enveloped her in my arms, I vowed to protect her, better than I had my sister her mother. I looked up to see her soul radiate a blinding light. She smiled, pure and pristine once again, and dissolved into thin air. Water is thicker than blood. They ring around Jenny, her pocket full of pennies. A splish, a splash, they all watched her drown. Arya twirled and sang while I got her ready. God, where does this four-year-old pick up such a version, I thought, chills going down my spine. She is a weird one anyway. I took her downstairs to Mum. Suze, you study well with the other girls. Sorry you can't come with us to Grandma's. My big girl. Be good, she said, kissing my forehead. I'm 14, Mum. I will be fine. It's just one night, I said, hugging her. 
They left after a series of goodbyes and hugs and me rolling my eyes. Jess and Rika came first, then came Maria and June. We studied for a while but quickly got bored. That's when Rika got the Ouija board out. I had never seen anything like it. It was etched in all white marble. The planchette was made of actual bone, hopefully not human. I felt a sense of excitement bubbling in my stomach with just a hint of fear. So, I will be the leader just because I've done this before, okay? Rika declared. We all just nodded along. We dimmed the lights and sat on the carpet in an eerie silence. O oh, roaming spirit, hear me. We want to make contact with you. Rika boomed puffing her chest. Nothing happened. Oh, I forgot to ask a question. She giggled nervously. Oh, roaming spirit, hear me. We want to make contact with you. Are you there? The lights flickered. The planchette zoomed to yes. We were so surprised that we pulled back our hands. Put your fingers back on it. Rika hissed. We complied. Will we all pass the Monday test? Rika asked. It's getting to know this time. We groaned. Somebody tugged my hair. I ignored it. It must be Jess, ever the prankster. This time, the sharp tug made my head jerk. Cut it out! I turned and whispered to Jess. She looked back at me, all confused, before I could say anything. A child's giggle made us all jump. That spooked us enough for the day, and we directly pointed the planchette to goodbye. Jess and I spent the night tossing and turning. Next morning, Mum entered sobbing. What happened? I asked, hugging her. Your sister was singing this made-up rhyme, and it got Mom upset. Dad replied, hand rubbing Mom's shoulder. I looked at him quizzically. It's time you knew, I guess, he said, sitting down. We had a child before you. Her name was Jenny. You were one, and she was four. She didn't keep well, but she adored you and would tug your hair softly whenever she wanted to play. I felt the blood drain from my face. One day, she managed to get to the lake out back. His voice broke and drowned while nobody was watching. Maria tugged my hair and sang sadly. No. They all watched me drown. Memories She did a quick check in the mirror as she spritzed his favorite opium perfume, waiting for him. She was wearing her favorite sky blue dress with bright yellow poppies, with a bit of mascara, rouge, and a hint of raspberry on the lips. 
a little solid hair adorning her neck, his first gift to her after marriage. She was dolled up for their 45th marriage anniversary. He was late. He had gone to run a small errand, or rather, that's what he would have her believe. But she knew he had forgotten to get her a gift as always. He will come home with a gift and a bunch of tulips. Nodding her head, she giggled at the thought. She heard the keys unlock the main door. He's here. Her eyes twinkled as she made her way out. She was confused to see her daughter's family pouring into the living room. Ah, flowers. Jerry must have planned a surprise. She was right behind them when she saw them place a rose near Jerry's smiling photograph. Jolted to reality, she remembered. Her daughter had come home in tears that day. Jerry was mugged for the ring he bought her. He refused to give it up. They stabbed him, and he had bled out before help could arrive. She stood, reeling in shock, her eyes blurred with tears, clutching her breaking heart, which was in searing pain, just like when she was told on that fateful day. She wiped the tears in time to see her sobbing daughter place a tulip on her own photograph. It all went dark. She did a quick check in the mirror as she spritzed his favorite opium perfume, waiting for him. The scent. It was my musky sweet perfume that had attracted him to me at first. Then started a whirlwind romance that ended in a quick marriage amid the lavender fields. The four-poster mahogany antique bed, inlaid with sandalwood, was one of our first and favorite buys together. We had many a wondrous nights on that bed. It used to fire up his passion like nothing else can. It was like living a fairy tale. Till the day of the crash, we survived. His sense of smell did not. That was the beginning of the end. It took me a year to realize losing his smell was not the sole reason for losing interest in our marriage. Even the bed couldn't save it. I had seen the look in his eyes. The look that was used to be exclusively reserved for me. His eyes lighting up in that special way when he saw Rose in the Christmas party. He denied it all, not knowing I had already stumbled across their messages. I couldn't go on anymore. I left a note to not bother looking for me and then climbed inside the secret panel in the bed and closed it forever behind me. It had been only two weeks when he brought Rose to the bed. She gagged midway through their passionate play and ran away to hurl. <laughs> she couldn't handle the smell that suddenly seemed to come from everywhere in the room. They looked everywhere but couldn't find the source. He is moving to his new house tomorrow. 
They are loading the bed onto the U-Haul. He can only sleep with me in his bed. As my last act, I made sure of that. Reality check. I saw her on the first day of my course at USC, radiant like sunshine. She stood a little away from the rest of the groups, chewing on her pen absentmindedly, notebooks held close to her chest. Instead of stress of the first day, she had the most beatific expression on her heart-shaped face. She looked my way and smiled and I felt like I was wrapped in a warm hug. She came and sat beside me in the last row every day from then on. Her name was Trudy, and our furtive glances soon advanced into general chit-chat, and eventually, flirting. She laughed at my ill-hidden attempt to ask if she has a boyfriend, and then asked me out for coffee. Our first date was beautiful. We chose a secluded spot in the park with overhanging fuchsias. I got us a couple of coffees and we talked for hours. She was so engaged in our conversation that she didn't even touch her coffee. We started meeting regularly. Romantic long walks by the river in the moonlight. Fun boat rides on the lake. Comfortable long drives in my car. She had some diagnosed mental issue and I came from a family of those. We understood the deepest hidden parts of each other, even the ugly ones, better than anyone else. She could read my mind as if she had known me forever. I felt a deep, soul-stirring connection, the kind where, when you kiss, you feel your beings meld into one. I didn't have many friends, but was always close to my sister. I decided it's time for them to meet. I introduced True and the blood drained from my sister's face. She held me by the shoulders and said the most devastating words. There is no one there, Alex. You are hallucinating like mum. The last six months flashed before my eyes. How True never spoke with anyone else but me, never ate, Never wanted pictures taken. It all clicked. I am on medication now and don't see her anymore. Even though I realized that she was just a figment of my imagination. Why does it feel like I lost my soulmate? Is it weird that I want her back? Hello, doctor. I am Trudy. My psychiatrist feels I will benefit from therapy. I was ghosted by my boyfriend Alex, or so I thought. Alex told me he will introduce me to his sister, and then disappeared. I called him at the number we had talked for hours earlier. The number didn't exist. 
When I asked around, I realized nobody at my class at NYU had seen him ever. Apparently, my dosage was not enough, and I had started hallucinating again. It was the most real hallucination of my life. Even though I realized that he was just a figment of my imagination, why does it feel like I lost my soulmate? Is it weird that I want him back? Never again. It was a marriage of convenience. I performed all my duties without complaining, but he started complaining all the time. The food was too salty, the color of my dress was wrong, you know. Then, it started with a slap. I had forgotten to polish his shoes. As I crumpled to the floor from the shock and the sting of the slap, I could hear him say, Now look what you made me do. He came home with flowers that evening, contrite and loving. I was overjoyed. But it became a cycle. He would beat me up and then shower me with love. At least I had love, right? I was pregnant. The beating stopped. I thought, now we will be fine. Aliyah was born. The most beautiful, cherubic baby I had ever seen. The love I felt for her just washed over me in waves. It started again. Beatings became more violent each time. Then one day, they just... stopped. He had given up on me. He brought June home. She was pretty and nice to Alea, but ignored me completely. I didn't care as long as I could play with my daughter. One day I saw the ring. He had married June. He was spending the night with her now. I wonder what he had told her about me. That I was insane? Can't be trusted? I tried talking to June. She wouldn't listen. One day I got mad and banged the table hard, scaring her. I stopped trying. Aaliyah was growing fast. She had started blabbering. I started teaching her my favorite poem. June is crying in a corner. Aaliyah is wiping her tears. He slapped her for the first time today. I feel for June. I hug her. She shudders and cries harder. Aaliyah is singing on repeat. I am elated. June is on speakerphone with her friend Priya. Her friend suddenly inquires, What is Aaliyah saying? June laughs and says, It was just gibberish. Priya grows serious. No, June. That is a poem in Hindi. Wasn't Aaliyah's mom from India? She left though, right? I feel the room grow cold. I recalled the last fight. He pushed me down the stairs. My back snapped. I couldn't move or speak. He dragged my body to the backyard late at night, ignoring my pleading eyes. I am in the grave behind the fence. 
I never left. He is home, and June is asking about me. I see the anger build in his eyes as he clenches his fist. June senses it too. She runs into Aaliyah's nursery and locks the door. He is banging the door now. Soon he will be able to break it down. Never again. I hold him from behind, smothering his face with my grave's dirt. He starts choking. He can taste the dirt in his mouth. As life ebbs away, he sees my smile in the hallway mirror. They rolled it as a massive heart attack. Surprise! The incessant honking woke her up. She looked at her mobile phone, annoyed. 3 a.m. Mr. Larson must have taken the wrong turn into her driveway again. He really should not be allowed to drive with his onset of Alzheimer. He will realize in a minute and be on his way, she thinks to herself. The honking turned into one long screeching like a banshee honk. What the actual hell? Did he pass out over the steering wheel? When it hadn't stopped after five minutes, she started to get worried. She put on her robe and gingerly opened her main door a crack, cursing herself for acting like one of those stupid people in the horror movies. First rule, never go out alone. But here she was, armed with a bat, she took one tentative step forward. The car was still blaring, completely hidden in the shadows. She gripped the bat a little tighter, trying to stay in the shadows herself, wondering if she should run back in and call 911 instead, but then advanced further, thinking, if Mr. Larson had a heart attack, they will not be able to reach this godforsaken place on time. Another step and she could see the panic-stricken face of Mr. Larson. She let out a sigh of relief. She walked over, confidently, and saw relief wash over him once he spotted her. Mr. Larson, you are in the wrong driveway again. What are you doing out at this time? I have night shift this week. I was going to the office. He mumbled. You retired a long time ago, Mr. Larson. Now go home and rest, she sighed. Y you don't understand. It was very important that you come outside, he said with a sense of urgency now. Why? she asked, cocking her head. Because I... 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 I don't remember. But it was very important. He whispered. It's okay, Mr. Larson. I am out now. Everything is fine. Go home. Not office, okay? Go home. She said soothingly. She turned and walked away, leaving a bewildered Mr. Larson in her wake. He threw the door shut. Finally, she is back. He slithered out of the crawlspace and hid behind the bedroom door. 
Surprise always makes subduing them easier, he thought. She entered, and he lunged at her, only to find himself staring down the barrel of a Smith & Wesson instead. Surprise, she said gleefully. Thank God Mr. Larson had called back after her. He finally remembered what it was. I saw somebody climb through your window as I passed by, he said, handing over his revolver to her. The Farmer Dustin Jones was found brutally murdered at his villa in South Avenue. The police have confirmed it to be another vigilante killing by the farmer, as he likes to call himself. His calling card, a note with Galatians 6-7 printed on it, was found tacked to Dustin's heart which was placed on the side table. Dustin was positioned on the couch, a deep crimson gash on his chest. He bore signs of torture with multiple bruises, contusions, and cracked ribs. As per the M.E., he was zip-tied and gagged before the torture began and was alive when the heart was extracted. It is pertinent to note that the neighbors heard some strange noises, but chose not to intervene due to the recent events. For the uninitiated, Dustin had been in the news a month ago due to the disappearance of his wife, Angela. According to Dustin's initial statement, he came back to an empty house on June 3rd, he registered a missing persons report with a local precinct next morning. On further investigation, it was found that Angela had told multiple friends about Dustin's abusive behavior. She had sent photos of bruises he inflicted, and her last message said she feared for her life. When confronted, Dustin denied everything, accusing the police of fabricating evidence. On June 15th, Angela's dismembered body was recovered from the locked ice chest in the garage. It was too deteriorated to get any DNA evidence, but she was estimated to have died on June 3rd. There was also blood evidence found in the kitchen. Dustin had an alibi for June 3rd. He had ran a red light on the other side of town and was captured driving his blue BMW by the traffic cam. The case remained open. But the general consensus was that Dustin had managed to get away with murder. Till now. The police will continue the investigation to catch the farmer, who has public favor firmly on his side. I scrolled through the comments. Justice finally served. The farmer is sent by God. Angel of Righteousness. I grinned, basking in my popularity. If only they knew. It was easy to seduce Angela with my charm. Just a nudge, and she was ready to spread the horrid lies about Dustin. She actually believed I would help her kill Dustin and make it look like self-defense. <laughs> Greedy fool. I loved seeing the bewilderment turn into realization in those big blue eyes as I choked the life out of her. 
I feel something stir in me when I recall how I hacked her beautiful porcelain body in the kitchen. Dustin? No. He put up a fight, but he was too drunk to do any damage. I close my eyes and savor the feeling of his beating heart in my hands. This will do for a couple of months. The farmer. I chuckled reading that. My own inside joke. What would they do if ever they find out the farmer is actually the farmer? Monster. My mom is a monster. There, I said it. Before all this happened, she was the most devoted mother ever. Anybody would choose her to be their mother like I had. Now, does she even remember her son will turn 11 soon? My first birthday. In this miserable, dank basement. It has been eight months since she has kept me shackled to this rusted bed. I long to see the daylight, touch another human skin, but I miss my favorite food the most. She feeds me raw and bloody lamb on occasion, makes me want to puke, though a little less than what she usually feeds me. Just scraps, enough to keep me alive. Every Sunday, she would take great pleasure in torturing me in peculiar ways. How she can do this, gazing at her once beloved son's face, is beyond me. Some days, she would just burn stuff, filling up the basement with rancid smoke till I pass out. Other days, it would be sounds that make my ear bleed, literally. God alone knows to what extent she is willing to go. Just now, she splashed some water on me without any warning. Instantaneously, blood-red blisters appeared on my scalded face and arms. I howled in pain, making her drop the rest of the water and run. I left him howling and ran up the stairs as fast as my legs would carry me. I closed my ears, trying to block out the horrible shrieks from the basement, collapsing on the floor in a heap. My sobs reverberated through the hall, mixing with his shrieks. Almost a year back, there was a string of murders. Every time, nothing was found except the skin of the child carefully laid out on the bed intact, like a bodysuit waiting to be worn. It was found the murders were on the 10th birthday of each victim. I remember feeling guilty for being glad my son had already turned 10 last month before it all began. That night, something woke me up. As I went to the kitchen to get water, I peeked into my son's bedroom. What I saw was worse than any nightmare imaginable. The creature's body was sinewy. A dark crimson mixed with white taut tendons, ridges protruding from its spine, ending in a fleshy tail. Eyes, just cavernous hollow pits, 
sharp, jagged teeth laid bare, morphed into a perpetual death grin. It had no skin or flesh. Even the muscles were contorted and bent. Lying on its gnarly feet was my son's unblemished skin, a bodysuit which he donned to become my son. Since his tenth birthday, he was so happy, loving and attentive that I ignored the obvious signs. It wasn't my son. I imprisoned it in the hopes of exercising it. I tried sage, hymns, now holy water. But does it really work when it's not a possession, but a demon wearing your son's skin, turning your son into a monster? Inheritance When I met Brian, he was my best friend's boyfriend. I made sure we got along like a house on fire. As you would have heard a million times, one thing led to another and, well, I lost a best friend. Brian was very romantic. Being rich definitely helped achieve some of those relationship goals. He would surprise me with a rare bracelet one day and sweep me away just for breakfast with a view the next. Who in their right mind would have said no to all that? His athletic frame, tousled hair, twinkling eyes and a lopsided grin didn't hurt either. So when he bent the knee underneath the northern lights, I quickly accepted the five-carat rock. The first year was marvelous. We adopted Charlie to cement our commitment. He confided in me how he alone inherited the family fortune and thus estranged his brother who was the dark sheep of the family. They were very close ones, but the animosity had become a chasm difficult to cross. With time, things started going downhill. Our love wilted as his business bloomed. One day, Brian asked if I went shopping again. He started nagging me over my unnecessary expenses. I just needed to pick some jewelry, dresses and toys for Charlie. I replied nonchalantly. I could see he was upset, but didn't say anything. He just blocked my credit cards and started a monthly allowance. This put a strain on our already withering relationship. Around this time, his brother approached to reconcile and Brian jumped at the chance. I was not prepared for the ruggedly dark Blake fire dancing behind his eyes. As he rested his eyes on mine, I could feel a blush spread across my face. Brian refused to split the inheritance with Blake unless he proves that he has changed. Brian left. And while I was consoling Blake, I accidentally brushed my hand on his thigh. He immediately got up and left. I had never felt more scorned. I stand to inherit everything if Brian has an accident. If Blake wants it so bad, he would have to beg me. Two birds, one stone. Soon, 
the opportunity presented itself. Brian had slept in the guest room after last night's fight. He woke up with a first slice slashing his neck. Startled and confused, his hands flew up to his throat. I saw the life seep out of his eyes as blood pooled on the floor. I brought the peanut butter to fill his wound. Charlie loved peanut butter, and he was hungry. Nobody would question why a Rottweiler suddenly attacked. I heard the door downstairs click open. Brian's voice floated up. Angie, is Blake still sleeping? He crashed here late last night, drunk. I forgot to message you. I had to rush for an important meeting. I stared at the man on the bed, horrified. Thinking fast, I shrieked and ran sobbing to Brian. Charlie killed Blake! Damn, that twin foiled my perfect plan. Patchwork Quilt Lounging in the warmth exuded by the homey fireplace, the tranquility on her face was marred only by the slight smirk threatening to spill over her lips. Pam hunched over her unfinished patchwork quilt, caressing some patches as they transported her to a time bygone. A tune escaped her lips. I stitch a quilt of patches, memories and faded swatches. I caress and remember every smoldering ember. Merlot for my bestie Mel, she pointed him and hard I fell. If only she had agreed to part. Wouldn't have had a broken heart Checkered yellow for my mom Though she made a happy home Rigid she stood against my dear That I just couldn't come to bear Pink just like the blushing Sue The day she met him much I rue even I knew her fault was none. I lamented what had to be done. Efforts of mine finally paid. Lovingly, lifelong vows made. Bliss awaited, I could tell. But instead, it went to hell. Piece of Sharon in a lush green Helplessly I saw my life career Vows broken, it began again No place to hide from the pain I spent time collecting patches Mending wounded souls' gashes why is love not enough, I wonder, if a lander's yet, it's my blunder. 
The latest patch I'm stitching in Me is baby blue The color of sin He misses her dearly Oh, I bet But I have him back So no regret When his thoughts run impure again Then I would have to take the rein Patch to gain from fresh blood spilt Maybe someday I can finish my quilt Ted stood rooted in the dark, tucked behind the living room doorway Pam's favorite wine in hand His mind raced even as his heart was jumping out of his chest Mel! His first serious date was found shot in the heart, a mugging gone bad, they said. Sue, the shy girl he dated years later, just disappeared from his life, leaving a cryptic note behind. Sharon, the first one he had cheated on Pam with after their marriage, jumped off her building. There were a few passing flirtations that vanished, but he didn't give them much thought. Until Mia. Mia was breathtakingly gorgeous and exciting. She drowned, accidentally, last week in her swimming pool. The wine shattered, straining the floor with a deep red. Ted willed his frame into the light, scanning the quilt with new eyes. Mel was found dead in a red dress matching the patch. The green belonged to the dress on Sharon's broken body. Finally, his eyes rested on Mia's patch of blue from the dress he had gifted her. He felt something shift. He turned to a frightened-looking Pam. I have never felt such intense love in my life, he told her, then kissed her passionately. His eyes shone brightly as he whispered breathily in Pam's ears. I kissed Tina today. The teal of her dress will go superbly with the other patches.